Lord God, thank you so much for today, for the opportunity that we have to come together and to read your word together and to hear from you together. And I ask that you would speak to us, that your spirit would teach us, um, and that you would uh, yeah, help us to better understand our our salvation and the plans and purposes that you have for us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so can you tell me what the focus of the book of Romans was in the first five chapters? Justification. There's justification. What's justification? Being declared righteous. Being declared righteous. So the first five chapters, Paul is explaining that we have been justified. We've been declared righteous. And we've been justified not by our works or according to God's law. We have been justified how? By God's grace. By God's grace on the basis of our? Faith. Faith. Yep. So that was the first five chapters of the book of Romans. We're saved through our faith, by God's grace, not by our works, not by the things that we do, and not um, according to God's law. But that's all past tense, right? That's you have been justified, you've been declared righteous, you have been saved. But God's not finished with you. Now he wants to make you righteous. He wants to make you, well, he wants to mold you into the image of his son. What do we call that? Sanctification. Sanctification, yeah. And so since chapter 6, that's been Paul's focus is sanctification. Now we've used that term a lot in the last few weeks, but it's probably worth like looking at a little bit more closely. So the word sanctification in Greek is hagiasmos. I know the uh, pronunciation because I haven't learned Greek, but that's the word, hagiasmos. And it's a noun that is based on a verb, hagiazo which means to sanctify. What does it mean to sanctify something? Make it holy. Make it holy. So basically, in Latin, the word for holy is sanctus. And so sanctifying is just making something sanct, or sanctus, which is making it holy. So Paul's focus for chapter 6 and 7, and it will be for chapter 8 as well, is our sanctification, how we are made holy. But the question then is, what does it mean to be holy? What do you think? Set apart. Set apart. Yep. What else do you think of when you when you think of holy that you want to be holy? Righteous. Holy. Yeah, generally free of sin, but we get that through salvation. Yeah, so it's actually really interesting. In Greek, the word for holy is, well, it's related, hagios, right? That's why that's why to make you holy is hagiazo, and sanctification, the like being holy is hagiasmos. But it's based on this word hagios, which means holy. And <clears throat> that word is based on a word, hagnos, which means to be pure. And so to be holy is to be pure, right? Cleansed from any impurity and made perfectly pure. And of course, God is 
perfectly pure, right? He's holy. As the four living creatures around the throne of God sing in Revelation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That holy, holy, holy is hagios, 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 pure, 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 like you're perfectly pure. And the amazing thing is that in Romans 15, Paul will say that I serve the gospel of God like a priest so that the Gentiles may become an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, that word sanctified, it's, it's holy. So we are made holy. How? By the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. You see, like it's like the, the Spirit who is holy makes us holy. Same word. Anyway, okay. So that's cool. God wants to sanctify us too. He wants to make us holy and he wants to cleanse us from all of our impurities. And he does that by the Holy Spirit. But our understanding of holiness doesn't start in the New Testament. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't start with Paul and it doesn't have its origins in Greek. The New Testament is built on the Old Testament. And so our understanding of holiness really begins in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word that's translated holy is kodesh. That word is based on a verb, uh, kadash. Any guesses what kadash means? Set apart. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. Like, at the point of holy, we have these two words in Greek and Hebrew, and, we, and, and it's the same word, right? It's holy. In, in Greek, it's hagios. In, in uh, Hebrew, it's kodesh. But the, the, the basis of those words is actually different, and the meaning of those words is actually a little bit different in the Greek and the Hebrew. Purity is absolutely important for holiness in the Old Testament, but it's not the definition of holiness. Uh, the word kadash really means to be set apart as special, like separated from common, earthly, worldly things. The fourth commandment was, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy being set apart. Don't treat it like any other day. Treat it as special. Separate it from like all the other worldly days is the idea. And of course, God is holy, right? He is perfectly pure. But that's, in a sense, not what makes him holy. The reason that God is holy is because he is utterly unique, set apart. There's nobody else like him. As, he, as it says in 1 Samuel 2, No one is holy, set apart like the Lord, because there is no one other than you. There is no rock like our God. And in Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord. I have no peer. There is no God but me. So one of the things that sets God apart, that makes him holy, is his purity. But there are many other things that make him holy. For example, in Isaiah 46, God says, Truly I am God and I have no peer. I am God and there is none like me who announces the end from the beginning and reveals beforehand what has not yet occurred. What's he saying? What makes him... Why is he, why does he have no peer? Why is there none like him? Because he just has no peer. <laughs> what does he say? There's none like me. And there's none who announces the end from the beginning and reveals beforehand what has not yet occurred. What does that mean? 
it means he's the only one who can know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, he's saying one of the things that makes him holy, one of the things that sets him apart is the fact that he knows the end from the beginning, that he is the only one who is able to tell us what is going to happen before it happens. And that's one of the reasons why he takes like playing around with fortune telling and astrology and stuff so seriously is because that's something that is you only he can do and that we should only look to him for this idea. So anyway, again, so, so God is holy for lots of reasons, but it's because he's set apart, at least in the Old Testament context. And again, remarkably, God wants to sanctify mankind, right? He also wants to set us apart and to make us holy. As he says in Leviticus, you must not profane my holy name for I will be sanctified. I will be, I will be holy in the midst of the Israelites. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so in other words, don't treat my name as ordinary. My name is holy. It is set apart, it is special. And I am holy, set apart and special. And I'm the one who makes you holy, who sets you apart as special. Does that make sense? Now, why does God want to sanctify us or set us apart, make us holy? So we can be with him in heaven. Mm -hmm. Any other reasons? Well, do we have to be holy to be with him in heaven? He has to make us holy, at least. In Exodus 30, um, God's speaking about Aaron, the priest, and he says, You are to anoint Aaron and his sons and sanctify them so that they may minister as my priests. So Aaron was sanctified and he was set apart, made holy. Why? So he could minister as priests. Yeah, so that he could be used by God to minister to others, right? Now, just as a, an aside, point of interest, how was Aaron sanctified? What were they supposed to do to him? Consecrate. What does it say? Sanctify. Anoint and sanctify them. You are to anoint Aaron and his sons and sanctify them. The way that they were set apart was by anointing them. And they were anointed with holy oil, with set apart special oil that was poured on their heads. And that's how they were anointed. And that's what set them apart. Any guesses what oil represents in the Old Testament or in the Bible? Spirit. <laughs> yeah, the spirit. Do you see the pattern? It's the Spirit of God that sanctifies us, right? From the beginning, even back at Aaron's time, it was this at least representative, metaphorical of the Spirit that was anointing him, which is what set him apart and made him able to minister as priests. So anyway, you have these two ideas in the Bible related to sanctification and holiness. You have the one that deals with purity, that that which is holy is perfectly pure. And then you have the sort of like, Hebrew sort of concept of holiness, which is to be is being set apart as special, and in our cases, being set apart for a special purpose, being set apart so that 
we can be used by God to minister to other people. Paul actually brings these two ideas together in the book of Timothy or in his letter to Timothy. He says, Now in a wealthy home, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also ones made of wood and of clay. And some are for honorable use, but others are for dishonorable use. So if someone cleanses himself of such behavior, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So in other words, houses have lots of vessels. What are vessels? Containers. Yeah, basically bowls and containers, right? We've got lots of different bowls and containers in our houses for different purposes. We might have some like beautiful gold crystal bowls and vases, but we also have buckets. And in those days, they would have also had bowls, less honorable bowls, probably. One might say toilet bowls. <laughs> and we don't want to be toilet bowls, right? <laughs> Is the idea. We want to be, we want to be vessels that are used for honorable and glorious things. And so Paul says to us that then you need to purify yourself. And he says that if we purify ourselves, then we will be set apart, right? If somebody cleanses himself of such behavior, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart. That word is hagiazo. It's sanctified, holy. You will be made holy. And if you're made holy, then you'll be made righteous, useful, justified. Useful then you'll be useful for the master prepared for every good work. And so that's the goal. That's what we want to, that, that's the purpose of our sanctification really is so that we will be useful to, to God, to the God who loves us. And Paul goes on to like explain like how we purify ourselves, how we cleanse ourselves. He says, so keep away from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faithfulness, love and peace in company with others who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And in a sense, that's what we're doing here together, right? Um, and what we do on Friday nights is to be in the company of others who hopefully are calling on the Lord, pursuing the Lord with a pure heart. Uh, and obviously, like, righteousness is literally what we're learning about at the moment. Um, everything that I teach, I'm hoping that it will build faith in you and increase your faithfulness and give you peace and hopefully that will grow in love. So that's that's the point. Anyway, so that's what we're talking about, sanctification, which is the process by which God um, makes us more holy, more righteous, more pure, more set apart and more useful to him and to the people around us for him. Now, in chapter 6, Paul explained that we've been set free from sin, so sin shouldn't control us anymore. And he spent lots of time encouraging us to live as though we are free from sin. But in verse 14, he said something really interesting. He said, sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. So in other words, the reason that sin cannot control us anymore is because we're not under the law anymore. And the only way to be not under the law is to be under grace. But what is the implication of that? If being... What? 
if if it's being brought out from under the law that causes sin to have no mastery over us, what does that imply? In order for sin not to control us, we have to be brought out from under the law. We, we need to not be under the law anymore. What does that mean about being under the law? No, no longer guilty of breaking it. But what's the implication of when you are under the law? You're condemned by it. In the context of what he's saying here in Romans 14, Romans 6, 14. And there's mastery over you? Yeah, somehow when we're under God's law, it allows sin to control us. Which is kind of surprising, right? But that's what Paul has actually been explaining in chapter 7, is why that is. How it is that the law causes or allows sin to have control over us, to have mastery over us. And when you think about it, you very quickly realize that Paul is exactly right. Uh, to me, there are a few passages in the Bible that are more relatable than this chapter of Romans. In verses 7 and 8, Paul said, Certainly I would not have known sin except through the law. For indeed, I would not have known what it means to desire something belonging to someone else if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. So in other words, the very commandment not to do something made Paul want to do it. Is there anybody else who can relate to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. That's the very... So if you remember in um, chapter 5, Paul said that the law came so that sin would increase. This is why sin increases with the law. It's because the sin in us uses the law to stir up in us desires, wrong desires, sinful desires. Uh, it's also the reason why in, Paul, in, in chapter 3, Paul said that the knowledge of sin comes through the law. It's because when we have God's law and we have these standards, these commands, don't do these things. This, our sinful nature actually wants, makes us want to break those things and it causes sin to increase in us. But then there's the good news, the gospel. Uh, Romans 7 verses 4 to 6. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be joined to another, to the one who was raised from the dead, to bear fruit to God. We have been released from the law because we have died to what controlled us so that we may serve in the new life of the Spirit and not under the old written code. So the good news is we've, and that's what he was saying, like sin won't have mastery over you anymore because you aren't under the law anymore. You're now under grace. We've died to the law. It's gone. It cannot judge us ever again. And if there's no law, then there's no opportunity to break the law. And if you remember last week, if you've got no opportunity to break God's law, then what should you, what should there be less of? Break God's law? Uh, ultimately, hopefully, but first. 
the law comes and when when there's law there's opportunity to break the law and when there's the opportunity to break the law then there's the possibility of desiring to break god's law right and once you desire to break god's law well then yes you're probably more likely to break god's law and the idea is we've now died to the law there is no more law for us which means there's no more opportunity to break god's law and if there's no opportunity to break god's law then there should be less desire to break god's law because what is it that you're wanting to do it's nothing you can't do that like it's not a thing you know yeah yeah Okay, and so like we said last week, that's where Adam and Eve were before they ate the fruit, right? There was no law, so there was nothing. There was nothing to break. There was no way to sin really until they, until the law came, until they gained the knowledge of good and evil, and that's essentially where we are now. Although we don't, yeah. Anyway, that's that's the reason why sin shouldn't have mastery over us, why it shouldn't control us, because if we understand our position in Jesus, if we understand our reality, then we've actually removed one of sin's main weapons against us, right? <clears throat> sin has lost the ability to stir up in us sinful desires on the basis of God's law or to break God's law. Because again, like what law is the idea? And so sin should lose at least some of that influence over us. Now, of course, we don't necessarily live in that reality. If you remember the story of Reynolds III, we can find ourselves uh, locked in a prison with open doors and windows for most of our lives. But the point is, we don't have to be. We can leave any time we want. Uh, it just might require some self-control. But anyway, okay, so that's fantastic. Uh, but Paul has a question. If the law produces sinful desires in us, and in order to bear fruit to God, we have to die to the law, and in order to serve God, we have to be released from the law, then like, is there something wrong with God's law? What's going on? And so he asks this question kind of rhetorically. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And the answer was... Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, the law is not the problem. It's just a really good mirror that reflects our sinfulness back to us very clearly. Um, it's the sin in us that uses God's law to, to make us even more sinful, which really just shows how sinful, how depraved, how twisted we are, right? That when we're faced with something holy, we then, that makes us want to be unholy. Yeah? So anyway... The problem is our sin, not the law. And so Paul ended by concluding, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And then this morning, we'll pick up with verse 13 where, with another question that Paul uh, thought that people might come back with. So who wants to read? Anybody? Did that which is good then become death to me? So, okay, the law isn't bad, right? That's what he said. The law is holy. It's actually, the law is actually good. But has that good law become death to me? Like, 
Paul did, after all, say, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. So the law brought death, or more precisely, the law brought sin to life in Paul. And as his sinful nature took control of him, his like true real self died, is what he said. Uh, so the law brought death to him. But the question is, has it become death to him? Was the ultimate result of the law death in Paul's life? Is the question that he's asking. And his answer is going to be? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> He says, but sin, so that it would be shown to be sin, produced death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So firstly, it's not the, it's not the law that produced death in Paul, right? It's sin produced death in me. And so, in other words, be careful where you're placing the blame. But okay, so sin used that which is good, God's law, to produce something that is bad, death and sin in Paul's life. Is that a bad thing? No. Why not? It feels bad for us, but it's not a bad thing because sin needs to be judged, and that's a good thing. Right? Yep. Sin needs to be judged. Why does... Go on. Can you explain a bit more? Because if you have a righteous God, he cannot allow unrighteousness and sin and evil to go unpunished because then he would be doing evil. But why would it be a good thing that our sin uses God's law to make us even more sinful. So that we couldn't get away with it, I think. So we would know that we were sinning and could do something about it. Yeah, I think that's the key. It's what he says there, so that it would be shown to be sin. It's the idea that like, well, Paul has already said this, and we, we talked about it earlier. The law came in so that transgression may increase. And in Romans 3, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That was the point, right? That was the reason God gave us his law, is so that it would cause sin to increase. And the question is, why would he want? Well, so that, as he says here, it would be shown to be sin, and so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. And the question is, why does God want sin to be utterly sinful? And it's for exactly that reason. Sin deceives, right? It's constantly trying to convince us that it's not really that bad. It's not really that sinful. And so we actually need sin to be shown at, to be sin, to be shown to be utterly sinful so that we would, so that we would see it, so that we would realize our own sinfulness and realize our need for God's mercy and grace. That's the idea. Uh, and so this is actually a really wonderful example of a promise that Paul, that God is going to give us through Paul in chapter 8. He says, And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So it's really important to understand what Paul's saying here. All things work together for good. So he is not saying that all things will be good for those who are called, who love God. 
And he's not even saying necessarily that, that everything happens for a reason. What Paul is saying is that everything that happens, why ever it happens, God is able to work it for good. He's able to use it for something good. No matter how terrible it is, and like I said, why ever it happened, doesn't really matter. The point is that if you love God, He's able to take that situation, however bad it is, and use it for something good. And that's exactly what He's doing here, right? Because sin takes the good, God's law, and uses it for something bad to produce death and more sin in our lives. But God then takes that bad that sin has produced and he uses it for good, which is exactly what this promise is in Romans chapter 8. God takes the, the bad, the death, the sin, the pain and destruction that sin causes in our lives and he uses it to show us our sinfulness and to convince us that well, ultimately to convince us that our situation is hopeless, that our only hope is in God's grace. And that's a really good thing because our only hope is in God's grace. And so God is able to use sin to, to, to show us that is the idea. Okay. So then, anybody want to read verses 14 to 16? I'll read. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what, for what am, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Right. <clears throat> Do you hear like the frustration and confusion in, in Paul's words here? I don't understand. Like, I don't get it. I know what I want to do. I want to do good, but I find that I keep not doing the good. And instead, I keep doing the stuff that I hate. And I don't get what's going on is that, you know, the sense that you get there. And I, um, this is so much. This is what it's so often the Christian experience. And if you haven't, if you haven't experienced it, if you can't relate to this, like you probably will in time, but it's really encouraging to me that Paul, that Paul felt this too, really. And there's a reason why this is the case. Paul tells us God's law is spiritual, but we are not. We are carnal, which literally means like fleshly. It's like our bodies were made of flesh. Uh, we're non-spiritual. And, and that's the struggle, right? Is that we remain bound up in these fleshly, carnal, physical, non-spiritual bodies that are enslaved to sin. And bodies that are weak and impatient, that are quick to get angry or despondent, sad or jealous. And so how can we possibly live up to God's spiritual law? And well... In our flesh, we can't. But notice that Paul's problem isn't a lack of desire. He wants to do right, right? And his problem isn't a lack of knowledge. He knows the law. He knows what he should do and shouldn't do. Paul's problem is a lack of power. He lacks the power to do those things that he knows and wants to do. Can you guess where he's going? 
Um, what the solution is. He needs God's grace to help him be more righteous. More than God's grace. We already have God's grace. We had God's grace the moment he justified us. What do we need? Holy Spirit. Yeah, we need the Holy Spirit. That's where he's working to, right? He's saying all of this has already happened and it's done. We're set free from the law and whatever else. But this is still the situation we're stuck in. Like, I'm still stuck in this body that cannot do what I want to do and what I need to do or what I, yeah, what I want to do. Uh, and the reason is, you can't do this, well, yeah, we'll get there. You can't do this in your flesh. And he's leading up to chapter 8, where it's all about the Holy Spirit. Like I said, 22 times in chapter 8, he's going he's gonna to say the, whole, the Holy Spirit. So anyway, so that's one thing. The other thing is, notice the tenses. I am carnal. I don't understand what I am doing. I do not do what I want. I do what I hate. What, pre- what tense is this? In. Present tense, Eden says. Correct. This is in the present tense. Um, and I think as we continue, you'll see that Paul is not just talking about his experience before he was saved. This is his experience now, like at the time of writing, or at least, yeah. Um, he said he's carnal and he can't do what he wants and he does what he hates. Does that mean that Paul wasn't saved, that he hadn't been reborn and set free from sin and released from the law? No, I think it means he he's still stuck in his body and he hasn't been fully endowed with the Holy Spirit or hasn't fully taken control. Yeah, that I would say. I think we've been given all the spirit that we need, but we don't necessarily take, make use of it, right? Take control of it. Um, yeah. So exactly, it doesn't. This the fact that this is that this is Paul's experience doesn't mean that he's not saved. In fact, uh, it can be argued that the the very fact that Paul is aware of his carnality, of his of his sinfulness and his unspiritualness, is shows that God has actually been working in him. Martin Luther. Uh, says, that is the proof of the spiritual and wise man. He knows that he is carnal and he is displeased with himself. Indeed, he hates himself and praises the law of God, which he recognizes because he is spiritual. But the proof of a foolish carnal man is this, that he regards himself as spiritual and is pleased with himself. Does that make sense? In other words, if if you are aware of your unspiritualness that's an indication that you're not completely unspiritual that it's really the people who who think that they are spiritual and think that they're really pretty good they're the ones that are that are really in trouble Um, they're the ones that are described in proverbs 30 where god says this is a generation who are pure in their own eyes they think they're holy right and yet are not washed from their filthiness because obviously, if you're clean, what do you need to wash for? Um, C.S. Lewis says something quite similar. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. 
Good people know both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. Does that make sense? Have you heard the saying, the more you know, the more you don't know? Yeah. Or something along those lines, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That that's sorry. It's actually it's it's got a official name, I think. Possibly. I yeah. I heard it. Yeah. Anyway. Basically the idea is things are really complicated, generally, usually. And it's only when you uh start to understand them a little bit that you start to see how complicated they are. And when you see how complicated they are, you realize how little you actually understand. And if, and if you think you under, that you know everything, that's often a, a good indication that you actually don't know that much. And it's kind of the same idea here, that the more we come to know God's goodness, the more aware we become of our own sinfulness. Um, yeah. So, okay, that's all good. Then Paul makes quite an important point. He says, but if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good. What does that mean? If I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. Any ideas? So if, if the fact that we are doing some, well, the fact that we are doing something that we don't want to do means that what we actually want to do is what? Yeah, so if we're breaking God's law and in breaking God's law, we're doing something that we don't want to do, then by implication, what we do want to do is keep God's law. And if what we actually want to do is keep God's law, then it, it, it's an indication that we actually agree with God's law, that we actually think it's good, right? Which is good. That's much better than thinking that God's law is bad. Right. Even if we act as though we kind of disagree with God's law because we keep doing the opposite. The fact is that we when we're doing the opposite, we are doing what we don't want to do, which means that we're, what we actually want to do is do God's will. And so anyway, that's that's where then Paul comes to, because that still leaves the question like, why are we doing all these things that we don't want to do? And Paul kind of answers that now in, in verses 17 to 20. Who wants to read? I'll read. Cool. But now it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer me doing it, but the sin that lives in me. Right. So in other words, Paul is saying, sorry. It's quite the tongue twister. <laughs> it is. It is. But I love it. I love this passage. It's, yeah. Anyway. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So in other words, what Paul's saying is, that's not really me. 
Like, it is, but it also isn't. In the previous verses, there was no real distinction between the part of Paul that wanted to do the good and the part of Paul that did the evil. It was all just I. It was all me, right? And that's why it was so confusing. Like, if I've been saved, why am I still doing all these things that I don't want to do? But here Paul starts to explain what's going on. And he basically says, like, there's now two parts to you. There's the true inner inner part of you that's been reborn in God and wants to do the good. And then there's the, the, you're still inhabiting this old fleshly body that is enslaved to sin, that cannot do the good that you want to do, and that keeps doing the very evil that you don't want to do. Again, Paul is uh, is going to describe the solution to that conflict in chapter 8, which is the Holy Spirit. But for now, the point is, don't worry, like, that's not the new you that you're seeing. That's not the justified you. That's just the body of the old you that you're still having to drive around in and fight with. Does that make sense? So, then, who wants to read verses 21 to 23? I'll give it a crack again. So, I find the law that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. That's a lot of laws, right? The law of God, the law in my members, the law of my mind, the law of sin. What was the first law that Paul found? Of God. It's actually before those ones that I listed. The law. The law that when I want to do good. Okay. Keep going. Evil is present with me. Right. Paul found that whenever he wanted to do good, evil was with him. Where do you suppose that evil was? Is it like a little devil on his shoulder whispering bad stuff in his ears? No, right? We don't need... We don't need the devil to make us do it. We have the law of sin in our members. What are your members? Body parts. Yeah, it's basically body parts, parts of your body, in your body. You have the law of sin, sin in your body. You don't need evil somewhere out there chasing you down, like it's in you. And so whenever he wants to do good, he's got this evil in him that's like fighting against him. And so we find this battle raging within us, what he says, uh, between our minds and our bodies. Our minds love God and rejoice in his law and long to live righteously before him, but our bodies, our flesh, remain captive to sin and death. And so we continually find ourselves doing in our flesh those things that we don't want to do in our minds and not doing things in our flesh that we want to do in our minds, right? And I find this description, like, I find it such a perfect description of what we experience in our Christian lives, particularly, or at least as long as we're struggling in our own strength, which 
we so often are. As Paul will explain in chapter 8, it's only when we give up trying in our own strength and instead rely on God's grace and depend on his spirit that we will begin to have victory in, in this war. Martin Luther again put it like this, the flesh drives and demands and rages against the spirit and wants to have its own way. Likewise, the spirit drives and demands against the flesh and wants to have its own way. This feud lasts in us for as long as we live, in one person more, in another less, depending on whether the spirit or flesh is stronger. Yet the whole human being is both, spirit and flesh. The human being fights with himself until he becomes completely spiritual. Now, <clears throat> just an, as an aside, what, what part of us is fighting against the law of sin in our bodies? Uh, our will. What does he say? His inner being. So I would say, yes, I would say that that's, that that's right. That it's our inner being, our inner self that delights in the law of God, which is fighting against the law of sin. But Paul seems to associate something else with that inner being. What is it? Mind, yes, Eden. Not heart, mind, which I find, which I find right. So I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind. And I find that really interesting. And this is why. A couple of days before Jesus was crucified, he was in the temple in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were arguing with him about all sorts of different things. And then it says, now one of the experts in the law came and heard them debating. When he saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, Jesus didn't make these commandments up, right? He's quoting from the Old Testament. And that first and most important commandment is the famous Shema of Deuteronomy. Shema means hear, so it's the hear of Israel. Uh, it's this one. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloheinu... No. Et Adonai Elohecha. And it is, Hear, O Lord, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Do you notice a difference between the original commandment and the commandment as Jesus quoted it? There's no mind in the Deuteronomy one. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, right? The original commandment has you loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's three things. But when Jesus quotes it in Mark and Luke, interestingly, in Matthew, it's not. It's the same as in Deuteronomy. But in both Mark and Luke, 
there's an extra thing in there. It's all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It's four things. I find that interesting, right? Because I don't think that's an accident. I don't think Jesus forgot how the commandment went. This is, this is virtually every religious Jew can quote this commandment by heart. It's the greatest commandment. And so I suspect that there's probably something quite profound in the change that Jesus chose to make there. Uh, now, I obviously don't know for sure what he meant, but I kind of wonder if it's something like God's law was given to us in the Old Testament and it was founded on the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul or life and all your strength. But in our flesh, we can't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul and strength. And so God extends his grace to us. He says, okay, fine, but you can love me with all of your mind. You can control your thoughts, even if you can't control the desires of your heart. And so love me with all of your mind and I will forgive the unfaithfulness of your heart. You know what I mean? I wonder. Anyway, I don't know, but I find it interesting. Anyway, so we go back to Paul in Romans. Uh, he says that he delights in the law of God in my inner being. So his real inward self uh, loves the law and loves the God who gave the law. And he understood that the impulse in him to sin didn't come from, uh, from that real self, but it came from a different law that was in his body. Now, there's this quote I once heard that was attributed to St. Augustine, who we've talked about, St. Augustine of Hippo from 400 AD, but I haven't been able to track it down. So I don't know for sure if, if he said it, but uh, I like it anyway. And it goes like this. There are two kinds of loves within me. There is a love which loves the good. There is a love which loves the evil. And the best thing I can say about myself is there is a third kind of passion that looks at both of them. I have a love which loves the love that loves the good. And I have a hate that hates the love that loves the evil. I love the love which loves the good. And I hate the love which loves the evil. Talk about tongue, tongue twisters. But I like that. I kind of feel like that's what Paul is describing here. Because the reality is there is a part of me that, that loves what is good and right and just and pure and beautiful and holy and lovely, right? That's true. I do have a part of me that loves that. But I also have a part of me that loves things that I should not love, things that are not beautiful and, and holy, right? And I would be lying if I said that I didn't like deeply desire things that I, I ought not desire. And the best I can do sometimes, and I think that sometimes the bit that all we can do is to love that part of us that loves God and loves the good and hate the part of us that loves the evil. And that's and the point is, that's not saying that I don't love the evil. Because I, I do. There is a part of me that does. Right? It's, but it's hating that part of me that does. Do you know what I mean? And I think that... Yeah. I think that the goal or our goal of our Christian life is then 
little by little to shrink that part of you that loves the evil and to like grow and develop the part of you that loves the good. Um, but again, we'll talk lots more about that next time when we're in chapter 8. For now, Paul's focus is on this war that's raging within us uh, between our minds that long, that long to serve God and our bodies that uh, long to serve sin. And so we cannot be the people that we want to be. We cannot live the way that we want to live. And so we desperately need somebody to save us from our sinful bodies. And so that's why Paul cries out in verse 24. Does somebody want to read it? I can. Go for it. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? That's the cry of a saved man, right? It's Paul. And if you can't relate to this like desperate cry, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? It's possibly because you haven't tried hard enough to be sanctified yet. C.S. Lewis has this amazing passage on temptation, which I think is really cool. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to re resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. Remember, he was uh, writing this during World War II. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who, is, who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a very sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete real realist. So, Paul feels wretched. And the Greek word that's translated wretched literally means to be worn out to the point of exhaustion through hard labor. He's obviously been fighting against temptation and hopefully not giving in after five minutes and discovering just how powerful it is. And at this point, he's completely worn out. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? That word wretched or the, the, the Greek word that's translated wretched is only used in one other place in the Bible. Um, and it's used in Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. Now, in a prophetic context, that church, the church of Laodicea, or the letter to the church of Laodicea, is supposed to, or is thought to represent the end-time church. So that letter is, is written really to our church, to the church of today. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, 
pure, poor, blind and naked. Take my advice and buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so that you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. And buy eye salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. I find that really interesting because that is literally like uh, one of the things that characterizes our society today, right? Like we are wealthier and have less need than any society that has ever existed. And yet we are wretched. We are worn out with exha to exhaustion with the effort required, required for that. Um, and we are poor in those things that really matter because we spend all of our time and money pursuing those things that ultimately don't. And so Jesus is saying, Stop worrying about earthly gold and brand name clothes. Come to me. I will give you true tre treasure. I will cover you with eternal clothing. Anyway, so Paul is saying that he is completely worn out from trying to be good. But there's something to notice. In the last 12 verses, Paul has refer he's he's referred to himself 40 times. Did you notice that? I am unspiritual. I don't understand what I am doing. I want to be good, but I cannot do it. When I want to be good, evil is there with me, right? It's all about him. His entire focus is on himself and on his own efforts. And, and that has led him to the pit of despair. And that is the only place that our own efforts will ever lead us. It's to despair. So what then? Let's read 25, last verse. I will... Go for it. Thanks be to, um, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the Lord with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Right, so who will save me from this body of death? Thank God for Jesus Christ. That's what he says. So finally, Paul looks outside of himself, beyond his own strength, and there he finds hope and peace and a reason to rejoice in God and to praise him. And so, again, who will rescue, for, rescue us from our body of death? Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord. How? That's not in the verse necessarily. That's in all that we've been talking. How's he going to save us? Well, one, it was by providing us a different way to be justified, right? Uh, a different way to be declared righteous, not on... not based on our works, but based on our faith. Uh, and then, as he's been talking about in the last two chapters, by releasing us from the law and freeing us to serve God with our minds and by God's Spirit. And that's the, the glorious, hopeful gospel of freedom that we live in. Now, notice that Paul doesn't pretend that looking to Jesus is going to take this struggle away. Right, that we're still going to have this conflict between the law of 
God and which we love and we serve with our minds and the law of sin that our flesh so often still serves. But the, the point is there's hope. The hope is in Jesus. And remember where this, where this chapter started. In verse 4, Paul said, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be joined to another, to the one who was raised from the dead to bear fruit to God. And so we are dead to the law. We will not be judged by it ever again. We've been justified and we, have now been, and we are now being sanctified. But we're not sanctified by our own efforts, um, by trying really hard to be good. We're, we'll talk a lot more about it in the next chapter, but we are sanctified by God's Spirit. It's only when we surrender ourselves to God and to His Spirit, when we stop depending on our own strength and depend on God's Spirit for strength, that little by little we can increase the power of our mind. Where is it? Yeah. We can increase the power of our mind over our body. Um, and it is by walking in the Spirit that we overcome the temptations of our body and of, of sin. It's, it's only by walking in the Spirit that we can overcome the temptations of our body and of sin for any extended period of time. As Paul says in Galatians, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. But we'll talk much more about that when we get there. So for now, that's chapter 7. Um, and the next chapter is chapter 8. Next week, so I actually got my weeks wrong. Next week, Nate's going to be teaching from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, from 1 Samuel. Uh, and then the week after that, we're going to have a review week. And we've got a whole bunch of people who volunteered to summarize each of the first seven chapters. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because the first eight chapters are kind of like a chunk. That's all the theory is what we've been going through. And then things change quite a bit after that. After chapter 8, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are more like, it's more of a prophetic focus and talking about what, uh, what's going on with Israel and how, we re how Gentiles and Israel relate to one another within the body of Christ um, and ultimately what God's plans are for Israel. And then from verses 12 to 16, it's all like really practical. So verses 1 to 8, we've covered all the theory. And then from, verse, from chapters 12 to 16, Paul can then get into like the nitty gritty practical. Like, so what does that look like? How should we live? How should we treat each other? That kind of stuff, right? But so the point is at the end of chapter 8, it's kind of like a, there's a break and we then move on to something new. And so I thought after seven chapters and however many weeks, 16, 17 weeks, that it'd be worth like just quickly reviewing what we've covered over all of those chapters before we get into what is really the climax of that first chunk of the book of Romans, which is chapter eight. Uh, yeah, so that's the plan. Next week, Nate teaching, the week after, you guys teaching, and then the week after that, we'll start chapter eight, and probably it'll be another two weeks, and then we'll be done with that. Cool? Okay, what do you guys think from today?
what comes to mind, what stuck out for you. What does it mean to be sanctified? Set apart in the Hebrew and in the Greek. What did it mean in the Greek? In Greek, it meant to just be made holy, I think. It means to be made holy in both Greek and Hebrew. The question is, what is holy? Pure. Yeah, so in Greek, it had the idea of being pure, clean, no imperfection. And in Hebrew, it was a bit different. Yeah, what was it in Hebrew? Set apart. <laughs> that was gravelly sounding. Yeah, set apart. And again, one of the ways, well, if you remember, um, if you remember in Timothy, Paul said, what did Paul say to Timothy that brought those two concepts together? remember he's talking about the uh the different vessels the vessels for honor and then the dishonorable vessels and then he said purify yourselves cleanse yourselves make yourselves pure um and then you'll be a vessel for honorable use set apart, holy, and that makes you? What's the benefit of being holy? You can be an instrument for God. You, you can be useful. Yeah, you make yourself useful. That's what we want to be. A set apart vessel. <laughs> yep. What else? I think for me, probably the most interesting bit was what we just talked about was the differences between the Hebrew and the Greek. I think looking at, because the New Testament was obviously written primarily in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. I find looking at translations and differences in that quite interesting. Also at the end, when we talked about the difference between um, how Jesus didn't say with all your mind and the original one did, I think looking at the comparison between the two verses was interesting. Yeah, it's something I want to probably dig a lot deeper into, but uh, yeah, I find it very interesting. When you see those little things show up, you're like, hmm, this is something worth digging. Find out what's going on. That's the spelled by wrong. Thanks, Christian. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I don't even know if she's already gone. Anyway. Um, why so uh like i said in in romans 3 paul says that knowledge of sin comes through the law and in romans 5 paul says that uh the law was given so that sin would increase why does sin increase when the law is given because the knowledge of it comes to the fore. it's like looking at the garden of eden how they couldn't sin because they didn't know like what, what it was it's like we were talking about how if you're told not to do something 
it, it makes you want to do it. Yeah, why, like, why do you think that is? What is it that makes us want to do stuff that we're told not to do? Human nature. Maybe slightly more precise than human nature. I guess it depends how you define human nature. But like, there's lots of good things in our nature, I think. The devil's temptation. The evil within us. Oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Sorry? The evil within us. Yeah, so I would say it's sinful nature, right? It's that part of us that, uh, yeah, that sinful nature within us that for whatever reason lead, like draws us towards those things that are contrary to God's will. What else? Why? Why do we not do the good that we want to do and keep doing the evil that we don't want to do, even though we've been saved? Because we have separate natures in us, one that wants to be to do good and the other one that wants to be sinful. Yeah, I'd say something like that. Um, although our spirit has been renewed or, you know, we've been born again, we're still stuck in the leftovers of our, of our old man and we still have to deal with the, the fallenness of that, which includes a sinful nature that is always pulling us off to other things. So who is going to rescue us from this body of death? God, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus Christ, my Lord. Cool. Okay. Anything else? Does anybody want to pray? finish I can awesome <clears throat> dear Lord thank you for the time you provided for us this morning to spend together on your word um, thank you that we're still able to meet like this over zoom and learn from your word um, and a lot of people aren't able to do so at the moment um, please help us take what we've learned to heart and apply it in our own lives help us understand it in Jesus name Amen Oh, man.